we're talking about seeking the will of God, waiting on the Lord, and what that is even supposed to be about. I, I think in our day, trying to ascertain God's will is very mysterious. And, and honestly, there's so many different ways in which God can communicate his will to us that sometimes I suppose it can be confusing, but other times there's so many ways we tend to focus on just that one and we end up missing what God has to say because we're so focused, well, God's going to give me a prophetic word. Well, how do you know that? Because there's so many different ways in which he can speak, to, speak his will to you, not the least of which is Scripture. And so we want to be open to the various ways from Scripture that God speaks to us. And so last week, this week, and because there's just so much in this, that we need to grapple with and understand. I'm going to be focusing on just one of them today out of the eight that I've chosen. And the last three we're going to look at next week. How many of you, and don't, show, don't raise your hands, okay? This is about just finding the will of God in our lives. And honestly, this series, my goal is to demystify that. But how many of you have ever tried to follow, find God's will this way? You say, okay, God, what should I marry this guy? No, that's probably. <laughs> I mean, if you keep asking that question, maybe you just need to put that one on the back burner, right? So how many of you, you should I take this promotion? Should I, should I take this job, offer, whatever? Okay, Lord, show me in your word. Here we go. Ready? There. What does it say? And it says, Judas went and hung himself. And you say, okay, open the Bible. That's for another one. And it says, go and do likewise. And you realize you totally missed God. Totally missed God on that one. You, you, you had to have. You just had to have. Or have you ever done this? And I am sure that none of you have ever done this. Are you familiar with the idea of casting lots in the Old Testament? Okay. Um, so instead of lots, I've got to die here. Now, realize that the way... I. You might work this die is, since you see casting lots in the Bible. Well, I'm going to do that. And so you and your husband, you're going out on a date. And he asks you, so uh, where should we go for dinner? And you say, well, I don't know. And you pull out your trusty die. And he's looking at you rather strangely. And you explain to him, well, see, every odd number, two, four, and six, is a yes. And every, e uh, excuse me, every even is yes, every odd, one, three, and five, is no. And so you just, so she suddenly says, okay, God, do we go to McDonald's? And she rolls the die, and it says no. And she, thank you, God. Okay, God, do we go to Chipotle? She takes the die and rolls it, and it's odd, no. Whew, okay, all right. We, she's really wanting a nice place, so she takes, should we go to Ruth's Chris? She rolls the die, and it's an even number. She says, yes. And he looks over and says, well, then will God provide the money too? And the, and the truth is, sometimes we're, we, we can use something. That, I mean, would that be wrong? Would it be wrong? I mean, if casting lots is actually found in the Bible, and it's actually, church, found in the New Testament as well. Did you know? It's actually three times casting of lots is found in the New Testament. Is that how we should discern the Lord's will? Wouldn't that be nice if all we had to do is cat whatever casting of the lots would look like exactly? I'm sure it wasn't using a die or dice. But would that be a viable way for us as Christians today to find and discover God's will? How easy would that be, right? 
And there were times in which David and Saul were seeking God's will, and God would speak to them, and sometimes it was through the casting of lots. Remember, that's how Achan was chosen. That's how, uh, actually, in the New Testament, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was chosen to be on duty and go into the temple, and he was selected by that. Is that God's way uh, in which we are to discover his will? Numbers 12, um, you know, there are other ways in which God speaks to us that the Bible reveals. In Numbers 12, 6 through 9, it says, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. And so we clearly see here, just like we found out last week, God does speak to us through dreams and visions. We find that in both Old Testament and New Testament. Now, for Moses, it was unique how God spoke to him, generally in the cloud, face to face. And... You know, is this how God would speak to us? The casting of the lots found numerous times. The priest had what was called the breastplate, the high priest, and it had 12 stones, one represented one for each tribe, and then a Urim and Thummim. And we don't know exactly how they worked, whether they glowed or grew warm, but generally it appears from the evidence that we see in Scripture of how the priest used them, he would probably put his hand on them and find out what the will of the Lord is and probably one would be warm and the other would not and the one would be warm that was a yes and so you would yes or no now you you wouldn't you know when David asked so God uh, are we supposed to attack um, the these people and sometimes God would say yes no but sometimes then the, the word was the answer was not yes or no but it was a very detailed strategy the Urim and Thummim was not used then. The casting of lots was not used then. Obviously, a prophet was sought, and a prophet gave a word. So these were different ways in which God spoke to his people, even angelic visitations. That's another one. God obviously spoke his divine will of righteousness, the path of righteousness, through his word, the scriptures. He even used circumstances as we move into the New Testament, so yes, dreams, visions, scripture, we looked at last week, the Holy Spirit, circumstances, yes. But again, does God use the casting of lots? Does he use that? And, and the answer that we're going to discover here has implications across the board. We need to understand, this isn't just some really silly type, well, of course, Pastor Mike, we don't cast lots, but do you know why? And do you understand the significance of that answer of why to why? Lots were used, for example, when Zechariah was chosen. Another example found in Luke as well is in Luke 23, 28. They cast lots dividing Jesus' clothes. No, that was more like a rock, paper, scissors type of deal. That was, okay, whoever wins gets this item. So that wasn't necessarily seeking God's will. But how about this one? In Acts chapter 1... Very end, right before Acts chapter 2 in the outpouring of the Spirit, they are needing to know who's going to take Judas's place as an apostle. They, they, they were wanting there to be 12 and not just stay at 11. And so they cast lots in order to 
discover God's will in this. Now, let's understand that Proverbs is clear on this. Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This is a viable way in the Old Testament with regard to seeking God's will. The question, though, is do we do that in the New Testament? Now, let's just make a few observations here. Number one, it's interesting to note that all three examples of casting the lots is actually written by Luke. Luke is known as the charismatic evangelist, simply meaning that of all the writers of the Gospels and Acts, Luke is the one that focuses on the Holy Spirit by far and away the most of all four of them. That's why they call him the charismatic, because it has to do with the, uh, the, the, the spiritual gifts and the, the work of the Spirit. So he focuses on the Holy Spirit the most. Acts chapter 1 is the only true New Testament consideration, because the, the first one was Zechariah, and that was whether he, sh whether he was to be the one going into the temple. There's no temple. There's no need for lots cast in that situation. The other one was more of a game, rock, paper, scissors, for the Romans to decide what they, get, what they got concerning Jesus' clothes. And so this one we come to in Acts chapter 1 at the very end of the chapter. We realize that this incident occurs before Acts chapter 2 in which the Holy Spirit is poured out. Now notice this. That was not the only time in which leaders were chosen. Other examples of leaders were chosen. They never cast lots. Why is this? They never cast lots. The church leaders set leaders inside. Church apostles, church leaders set leaders in. So what is the difference then between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What's going on here? Ephesians 1, 13, it says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That spirit, we learned, leads us into truth. That spirit leads us. That spirit has rejuvenated us. So that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we actually have, you actually have, excuse me, chapter 2, you have the mind of Christ. Did you realize that? As a born-again believer that has been made new in Christ, you have the mind of Christ. You can think like Jesus. You can think his thoughts, if you will, because your mind has been renewed. Now, it is continuing to be renewed. We're going to actually look at that a little bit more next week. But the Spirit of God is in you. Cole, when you believed, you were marked with a seal of God, of his ownership, that you belong to him, and that seal was, that was a deposit of the Holy Spirit. That Spirit in, indwells every single believer. That Spirit fills, is poured out upon every believer that asks him, according to Luke 11 and the book of Acts. And in other places in the New Testament. So this idea of the Holy Spirit being in us, this is truly a big deal. In the Old Testament, the only one who had the Spirit were the leaders. They were the prophets, the priests, and the leaders, the kings, the judges. 
the Holy Spirit would come upon them and anoint them for a specific purpose. There were also, and this was a rare instance, in which someone was a craftsman. And Bezalel was a craftsman, and he was filled with the Spirit to fashion various items for the tabernacle of Moses. And so the Spirit came upon a select few, not on everyone like we have. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says this in verses 11 and 12. It says, For who among men knows the thoughts of God except the man's spirit within him? Excuse me. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received... The spirit of the world, church, listen, we've not received the spirit of the world. It says, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. God reveals his will. God reveals his plans. God actually reveals everything that he has given us in Christ Jesus by his spirit and, yes, through his word. So can I ask you, if this is the case, should we go to a prophet to seek the will of God? And I want you to think about that. They did that in the Old Testament. Should we go to a prophet or a prophetess to seek the will of God? Now, can I just tell you that that is very common in our day? Is that a viable way? Now, and maybe some of you have done that. Is that a viable way? Is that truly the heart of God for us, for his people? And, and if the, regardless of what the answer is, I want to know why. Does scripture tell me why? If scripture says don't do it, why, God? If scripture does say do it, why? What's the, what's the, what's the reasoning behind God's heart? Because that probably has implications in other areas, and I believe it does. Does God want us? To seek after prophets and prophetesses to discover his will. Now, let's just, again, let me emphasize, God has given his Holy Spirit to every believer. Every believer has the Spirit. Now, whether that person is baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit or the Spirit's been poured out upon them, there's actually five of those synonyms found in, in the book of Acts. That's another question. But every believer has the Spirit and can discern, to some degree anyway, God's will. The, the question I want to ask then is, this Spirit that he gives us, that ap apparently is anointing this prophet or prophetess to speak, is that viable? Let me just say this. Number one, prophecy is for today. I realize that there are my brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with that. The term that's generally used, whether we like it or not, is cessationist. So they just simply believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to us that way as he did then in the New Testament or even in the Old Testament. And I believe that one of the main reasons is because they believe that prophecy always reveals new truth. The problem I have is that that's just not what Scripture says. Prophecy always does. 
There's too many prophecies even recorded and how prophecies are talked about that go beyond that. It's not just a revelation of new truth. For Agabus in Acts 11 to say there's going to be a famine coming upon this land, that is not a revelation of new truth. That is something that was going to happen. In, the, in Corinth, and, and the conclusion then is if God were then to speak a prophecy, if all prophecy is a revelation of new truth and therefore inerrant, just like scripture, then we should canonize all prophecy. And since we don't do that anymore, the conclusion is we do away. God does not speak prophetically in our day. Now, I challenge that because that is prophecy is a viable way in which God reveals his will. And not just reveals his will, but encourages and comforts. There's so many reasons for prophecy. There's directive prophecy. There's predictive prophecy. There's other types of prophecy. There's foretelling, forthtelling. God uses prophecy to correct and so we just need to realize there's prophecy is multifaceted. It doesn't just reveal new truth. As a matter of fact, prophecy today would never reveal new truth. And let me go so far as to say when there were prophetic words in the Corinthian church, and we read about this, especially in 1 Corinthians 14, never were those prophecies canonized. Why? Because even though, now follow me, even though scripture is prophecy not all prophecy is scripture okay that's important there are too many prophecies that clearly were given that were never placed on the level of scripture actually this is why paul tells us in first thessalonians 5 to test all things don't despise prophecy test them whether they're good or bad or weigh them and how do you do that just because it bears witness in your spirit? No, because it lines up with the word of God. And any word that does not line up with the word of God, throw it out. If you ever hear a prophet give new revelation, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Don't follow after that. That revelation of new truth is embodied right here in front of me. This is what we have. See, this has been the problem within the Mormon church, for example. And there's so much wrong that is within that, um, within that, I'm just, I'm going to call it what it is. It's a cult. They teach about Jesus completely inaccurately. They talk about faith and they talk about heaven and hell and all these major doctrines inaccurately from scripture. They accept other prophecies. So if one of their apostles gives a prophetic word or one of the prophets gives a prophetic word, it is on par with scripture. They would consider it, therefore, I guess, inerrant, infallible, but it's on par with scripture. They have the Book of Mormon. They have the Pearl of Great Price. And they have other books that were written centuries and centuries ago that they embrace as scripture. And so... The Bible, the 66 books that I have in front of me, is not the only word of God that is inerrant and infallible. They embrace so many others and base their doctrine on them. Okay? This was the problem within the Roman Catholic Church. Because the Pope and those under him, if they said something was true, then the church had to abide by it. Because it was, it was lifted up to the level of Scripture. 
And this is what we need to have a problem with. But let me just say, prophecy today, and actually prophecy in Paul's day, was never that. It was never new revelation. The only new revelation that they got was when Paul or an apostle was teaching, or when they wrote it down, and that was scripture. That was inerrant, and that was infallible. And so we need to realize that this is the nature then of prophecy. We are to weigh prophecy. Can I just tell you, in, in, in 1 John 13, it says that we prophesy in part. Can I just ask you, what, what, what would that mean? That we prophesy in part. When we weigh a word, we weigh it according to scripture, not just whether it's a word of God or not, but to what degree is it God's word. Let me just give you an example, if that sounds confusing. Paul, in the book of Acts, let me quickly find the, uh, the here we go. In the book of Acts, verse 22, it says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, so this isn't just a one-time occurrence, but in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are awaiting me. Prison and hardships, Paul, in every city he's going through, there's prophetic words that are being spoken. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, there's prison and hardships that await you. But what does Paul say here? But God's spirit is compelling me to go. And he reasons at the very end of this, he says, that my, what is my life? My life is a race and it's laid out before God and it is his. And whatever comes may, I'm going to proclaim the gospel, persecution, let it come. And that was his heart. I'm paraphrasing. That was his heart. So we now come to the next chapter. Now listen to this. In Acts chapter 21, verse 4, it says, Through the Spirit, they, he lands, they land at Tyre. Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey, lands at Tyre. Every city, he's saying, they just keep telling me, Paul, hardships await you. And then they land here. Same thing happens in the city of Tyre. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Does Paul go to Jerusalem? Yes, he does. Was he disobeying the Spirit of God? I'm going to venture to say he was not. Now, I'm going to say that the best way I believe to understand this passage is that the Spirit of God was warning the, the, the prophets and prophetesses, and they were passing this warning along to him, just like he had done every city. But now they are saying, so therefore, don't go to Jerusalem. The Spirit's urging them and warning, and then they say, so don't go to Jerusalem. And I believe it was Paul's understanding, well, that's their interpretation. So when it says weigh prophecy, Paul's conclusion would be, okay, God's Spirit is warning me of these things, but out of their own compassion, they are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And that's, that compassion is not wrong. That's a right compassion to have. It was just not birthed by the Spirit. And so Paul then, let me, let me just give you, as a, give you this as a principle. Prophecies today can be wrong. 
prophecies today can be in part right and in part wrong. And that's why we must weigh it. When a prophet gives a word over you, they are usually greater anointed for this, but some of what they say may be wrong. Please understand that. And Paul, I I would say that this is a principle that the Spirit's internal compellings trump personal prophecies. I'm going to say that one more time. Spirit, how do do I word it here? The Spirit's internal compellings, just like Paul had, trump personal prophecies. Now, I'm emphasizing this because if we're not careful, we can use prophecy like the casting of the die, like a casting of the lot. Hey, I'll just say, I'll just go to say, hey, can you just seek the Lord about this for me? Well, I want to challenge that because whenever prophecies, and here's what you can do. Just look through every example in the entire New Testament. There's not one time in which a born-again believer in Jesus went to a prophet or anyone else and said, seek the Lord for me about the will of God. They never did that. Never. And there were plenty of recordings of how God through visions and dreams and prophecies and numerous avenues through which God reveals his will, he never, there's never an example and never certainly one confirmed or or with, with God's approval on it that someone went to another person saying, can you seek God for me? Can you please ask God whether this is his will for me or not? Not one time. And I think what we're doing is when we observe this, we are beginning to discover something profound that God has given to us that if we can can get it, I believe that God can lead his people in in, in a profound, in a right way. So when we are called, or when, when, when we realize that prophecy truly can be birthed from the heart of God, that it's not inerrant like Scripture is, it's not infallible like Scripture is, we must weigh it because prophecies are in part. We need to then ask, okay, then what is wrong with me going to a prophet if God would speak to them? Because here's, here's what I've discovered. As you look through the New Testament, Whenever there's a prophecy, God initiates that. He doesn't give a prophetic word because someone is saying to someone else, hey, seek God. So God initiates that prophetic word. God initiates that revelation of his will. We don't. Now, God may speak to us through a prophet, but never because we went to them. Because if we're not careful, that, beca- that becomes on the same level as fortune-telling because God has, we're missing the fact that God has put his spirit in us. And so my question is, really, how profound then is this? Paul has sought God about whether he's to go to Jerusalem or not. In every city, they're warning him that persecutions await. And then in the next chapter, they even go so far as to say, don't go to Jerusalem. So what's up with this? 
But Paul leans on the compellings of the Spirit in him. Prophecies are given to help us, but they do not replace the work of the Spirit. And if we're not careful by the casting of lots, that's what we're doing. We are despising the Spirit of God speaking through me. When we seek a prophet or a prophetess, hey, can you hear God for me? I want to ask you, and, and hey, back in the day, I've done that. But why wouldn't God want to speak to you just like he did with Paul? Why wouldn't God want to speak to Paul? Why wouldn't God want to speak to you personally? Now, let me just tell you that there's such a benefit in this because what we're wanting to do so many times is make the, will, the revelation of God's will to us so simple. Wouldn't it be so simple that every time you were wondering what you should do, you just roll the die? Wouldn't that be simple? Wouldn't it be simple to say, hey, I'm not sure what I should do here and ask someone else to seek God for you? Prophecies then are for confirming what God is already speaking to you. So as you are seeking God's will in the year 2023, I want you to believe that the Spirit of God is going to lead you. He might actually speak through a person and give a prophetic word. He might do that, but that would only be to confirm what he's already beginning to say to you. And I want you to believe that God can do this. He can begin to speak to your hearts, just like Paul. You don't have to be an apostle. Just like Paul, the Spirit of God can begin to compel you, urge you within. And your heart is just drawn to you. I remember when I was thinking about going to college, there were a couple of universities that I wanted to, I was considering attending, but I didn't know which one. So I did my homework and I read about them as much as I could. And just like almost anything else, every college or university had its positives and its negatives. So this was no simple task. And so I prayed about it. And I sought counsel. And I did other things, some of which I talked about last week, some of which I talked about this coming, I'll talk about this coming week. I don't believe God gave me a prophetic word, but I do believe he began to speak to my heart. And as I pressed in to know his will, I even visited each campus and I prayed and I prayed and I pressed in because this was important for me. I knew that I wanted to be a pastor. My education and what school I was going to go to, for me, that was a really important decision. But can I just tell you that eventually, um, even though, well, let me just say this. There were three colleges that I had in mind, and God led me to one in particular, Covenant College. I'm not saying that that is what God would want everyone to do. It's a very conservative college. I loved my time there, but it was only a year and a half. Wow. God led me to a college, and I truly believe that, for only a year and a half. And he allowed me to experience, see, all of my life, I was, I'd grown up and I went to secular schools, okay, the public school system. Now college, I wanted to go to a Christian college. And so all of those schools 
that were on my radar were Christian colleges. Nothing wrong with that. They were much more expensive. I did run out of money. And men, can I just tell you that many times that is how God will lead you? That falls in the category of circumstances. Opening a door and closing it. So he opened the door to Covenant College, and a year and a half later, man, did he close that door. And can I be honest with you? I was angry with God. I was thinking, but you led me here, God. Or, or did you change your mind? Did I miss you? And I wrestled with that because I felt so compelled that I was supposed to go there. And can I just tell you, I don't believe I miss God. I believe that God truly wanted me to experience a Christian college curriculum campus for a year and a half. And then I wrestled with God because now the only school that I could go to now, since I didn't have any money or barely any money, I was working hard in the summer, but the, only, the amount of money that I could earn would only pay for the University of Delaware. And I was angry with God. I'm going to be a pastor. Why are you calling me to a secular university? God, I was like throwing a temper tantrum. I don't get it. This isn't fair. Don't you love me? God, look at, you know, maybe I've got a rich uncle out there somewhere. And God and I had a wrestling match. And I ended up kicking and screaming, going to the University of Delaware. And I'm not going to tell you that this is exactly what God does to everybody, because he doesn't. But this is what God did to me, and within one month, I met my future wife. God was good in that way. He was merciful. He saw me throwing a temper tantrum, and he probably laughed. I'm glad I didn't hear it. I probably would have gotten angrier, but he probably laughed, and he just said, oh, Mike, just, just wait. And, and God, and it wasn't just the fact that I met my future wife and fell head over heels in love with her, but there were so many good experiences of evangelism, leading Bible studies, a strong Christian community there. There was so much that God did. And, and, and I'm only halfway there telling you, but God did so many good things. And it, he didn't, I didn't go to a prophet or prophet. Hey, can you just seek God? God wanted me to do the hard work. So here's what I want. Why why is that so important? Why wouldn't God want to make this discovering his will easier? You, you, you understand what I'm saying, church? And I believe it's this reason. Because in this process of you seeking God's will, he is going to do something profound in your heart. How did God the Father reveal his will to his son. I want you to think about that for a moment. How did the father do that? Did prophets come up to Jesus and say, hey, thus saith the Lord? There's no record of that. I'm not saying that that never happened, but there's no record of that anywhere. I would imagine that in part, Joseph and Mary played a major role in Jesus's life to some degree at some point in his life, especially when he was younger. When he reached an age in which he was responsible, or at least more responsible for his own actions, his mom, for example, when his ministry had begun, hey, Jesus, can you do this? And his response was, hey, it's not my time. And he needed to make that clear to her. 
that he was now going to be making his own decisions. But guess what he did? He, to he took her advice. Now, I, I believe that he had already known that that's what the father wanted him to do. But he needed to communicate that with his mother. I, you know what? I, thank you. But, and then the father at some point revealed to him. Now, why, why do I say that? Because Jesus says this. He only said what he heard his father say and do what he saw his father do. Wow. Wouldn't that be awesome if that's how God always led us? That we would actually see him do something, and then that's what we were supposed to do. Or that we would hear him, and, and that may, I would imagine, that's one of the reasons why Jesus spent so much time in prayer. But I, want, I don't want to assume that God the Father only spoke to Jesus, his son, in that prayer time in the morning, or whenever he prayed. It could have been while he was walking along, and God spoke to him. God showed him something. And so he went over to a funeral um, entourage that's leaving a town, and he touched the coffin, and the dead man inside sat up alive. Whoa, can you imagine? I'm really glad the people that were carrying him probably couldn't see him because they probably would have dropped it. But the truth is, the father communicated that to the son. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. I'm not the only begotten son of God. I am an adopted son of God. Mary, you're an adopted daughter of God. Leanne, an adopted daughter of God. And the reason why the father revealed his will to his son like this was because of their relationship. Let me just say that again. That the father revealed his will so clearly because of his relationship with the son. Does that stir something up in you? I hope it does. Because as we are building this relationship with our heavenly father, his heart is to reveal his will to us. And he purposefully does not make it easy. I, I can't imagine. I don't believe that he made it easy for his son Jesus. Does that surprise you? Can I ask you this? When Jesus was about to choose the 12, what did he do? He actually went up onto a mountain. That in itself took some time. And he sought God. Okay, so Father, who do you want me to choose? Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, okay, yep, got him, good, we're good to go. T two minutes later, he goes down and says, hey, I got the 12 names who are going to be following. You know what the Bible tells me? He was in prayer all night for the Father to reveal 12 names. Now, I'm, I imagine there's probably more to it than just revealing the 12 names. I would imagine that very possibly he also said, I'm going to give you this one, Judas, and I need to tell you about him. Can, can we just understand that, and, and this is hard, that even though Jesus is God, he had to fully, in, the, in his human form, he had to fully rely on the Father, even for direction. Even for direction. So here's my point. That Jesus, as close as he was to the Father, how delighted the Father was to reveal his will to him. So that Jesus said only what he saw, only what he heard the Father say and do, only what he saw the Father doing. Does that not prompt something in you to press into God? For us to, to say, you know what, if Jesus spent all night in prayer just to find out who the 12 were going to be, and maybe a few other things, but that was the main goal, 
all night in prayer. Do we think that we're going to just discover the will of God in 60 seconds? You know, there are times in which maybe that is all God wants. You know, 60 and just because I want you to know that God is not saying, okay, come on, just dangling this little, come on a little bit further, come on. God's heart is to do this. But there is something that happens in your heart when God delays the revealing of his will. And then we have to keep seeking, even fasting. And I tell you what, fasting this month has been hard for me. Wow. Man, it's like crucifying the flesh crucifying the longings of the body, man, do I get hungry. And it's hard. But I, I personally, I've just said, you know what? But I want God's will more than satisfying my hunger. I, I, I'm saying this because God, as we are seeking his will, God is wanting to build a relationship with you. He's wanting to stir up faith in you. He is wanting this process purposefully to be hard, usually, to be hard. Again, how easy it would be to just take the die and roll it or cast lots or whatever. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? How easy that would be. But that is not how God does it. Because the Spirit's in us, and he wants the Spirit to compel us to compel do you know how when anyone compels you to do something there is an urging inside there is a pressing an urging trying to persuade god is needing to persuade your heart that doesn't happen in a second God is longing to build that relationship as you press into him and he's changing you, changing your heart, changing your attitude. God's desire then is, is it, it, I would even say that in the heart of God that this process is even more important or at least equally as important as revealing his will to you. You doing his will. This process is that important. Because that process is what chips away. That process is what causes us to rely on him and seek him and build faith. This forces us to seek him. I have some things written down here. I want to read them to you. This this forces us to seek him. This forces us to pray and fast earnestly and not give up. This forces us to rely completely upon him, to lead us, to open doors and close others, for us to be teachable and humble and pliable in his hands to do his will, to build our faith, to not just trust in our ability to hear God, How many times have you doubted, well, I'm not sure I heard God or not? That's that's not the point. It's not for you to build confidence in whether you heard God or not. But that his sovereignty trumps your frailty, your inability, your fallibility, your weakness. 
can you believe that even in the midst of your wondering, well, is God speaking to me or is this his will? That instead of placing so much confidence in what he, whether he's revealing it in this way or that way, that God is going to lead you, that God's sovereignty trumps your doubts, your inabilities, that the heart of the Father is to love you and guide you as his child. You see, when we understand that, we're his servant. The servant seeks to listen to the master and obey him. And can I just tell you this? That if you're heading down the wrong road and your heart is truly yielded to him, you're truly asking him, God, no matter what your will is, I truly want that. And your heart is right. I believe that if you are set on the wrong course, he will put an obstacle there. That he will redirect you. Because that is the heart of God. Acts 16, Paul is truly, he's wanting to preach the gospel and he's wanting to go into the interior of this province called Asia and the spirit of God forbids him. Forbids him from doing a good thing, preaching the gospel. What? I, I'm not supposed, now I don't know how God did that. He could have been through a dream, it could have been through a prophetic word, it could have been through just in prayer, it could have been through all of them gathering together and saying, you know what, Paul, I don't think God wants us to do this. And confirmation, Many different ways that God led them, but the Spirit of God forbade them to do that good thing. And so he turns north, and he's about to go into Bithynia. And it says, the Spirit of Jesus said no. Come on, God, we're really trying to do your will here. I don't believe, though, that Paul had that attitude. I mean, they traveled for many, many miles to get to from point A to the stopping to, to where he had to turn north, and then many miles north only to say no, so he heads to Troas, and that is where God gives him this vision. There we go. How many miles? God, why didn't you just give me that vision way back here? That would have been so much easier. Yeah, it would have been. But the whole team, is I can just Im imagine that they're praying, they're seeking God. We really want to do God's will. God could have even blocked their will because of magistrates saying, hey, no, you're not allowed to do this. We don't know. Even through opposition, God can direct you. Isn't that awesome? There, see, there is nothing, the devil cannot thwart the perfect will of God for your life. He can't. Now, the devil might stir desires up. So that you're desiring this thing of the world more than Jesus' will. And he can do that. But if you're seeking after God, he will lead you. He will do that. So God is more concerned, I believe, or equally concerned about the process as he is about you following his will. So what this causes us to do then, church, is it causes us to fight it causes us to seek him with everything in us. To not just run after a prophet, to not just roll the die or the cast the lots or point to some scripture passage, but to press into God. And that his sovereignty, his goodness, and everything, his perfect will, it will trump, it will trump your doubts, 
your concerns, your fears, because you're truly seeking after him. Well, next week I want us to talk a little bit more about how God can reveal his will to us. And how then do we be conformed and get to that place where our will is truly yielded to him? Super significant. But can you stand with me right now? just going to encourage you if you could thinking about some of these things that you're seeking God's will in just kind of lift them up in your hands you can do it physically or in in your mind but just lift them up to the Lord even in the garden Jesus said not my will but yours be done and so father we lift up our will to you we lift up our desires to you We truly want the best. We truly want your will. Lead us, God. By your spirit, lead us. Speak to our hearts, God. Every step that we take. And in this process, God, fashion us. In this process, begin to shape the desires of our hearts that they would be conformed to your desires. And in this process, God, build this relationship of faith in you build this certainty of your sovereignty in our lives and your goodness that we can actually boldly trust you in every way with such great confidence it is not about how well I can hear the voice of God it is about the degree to which my heart is yielded to you and so we do that God It's yours. Lead us. And I pray, Father, that as you lead us, lead us to those green pastures. Lead us to those quiet waters and restore our soul. Let there be a rejoicing, Father, as we walk in your will to accomplish the desires on your heart. Because they are so good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.